Hello, I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work. You know, public buildings, people weigh in. There's a lot of emotion, right? There's a lot of feeling. In the end, I think it's great because when it's finished and it's good, man, the kudos and the wonderful love you get. Because they all feel like they're part of it, I think. In this episode, I speak with the architect Frank Gehry in the third of four conversations we recorded for this podcast. The last time I met Frank at a studio, we talked about his projects from the 1970s and 80s, including his home in Santa Monica and his work on Los Angeles institutions like the Hollywood Bowl and the Geffen Contemporary. We ended our conversation with his trip to Japan to accept the Pritzker Prize in 1989. I met Frank again to continue our talk, this time focusing on another celebrated Los Angeles landmark, the Walt Disney Concert Hall, as well as the Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao, Spain. That museum gave the name to the so-called Bilbao Effect, the idea that the creation of a world-class cultural institution can put your city on the map, generating tourism and cultural energy. We picked up where we had left off with his trip to Japan. So, Frank, the last time we spoke, we ended with your being awarded the Pritzker Prize. And you were 70 years old then, and you'd been a professional architect for more than 30 years. How do you remember receiving that phone call, and what did it mean to you? I'm a weird guy. I don't really expect things like that. I, You know, I, I didn't really know the Priskers at that point. I didn't... Uh, have much relationship with them. Uh, I went to the event where Hans Holine got it, and that's about the only involvement I had. The prize itself was going to be given away in Todaiji, the yes. temple in Japan. So you flew over, and at that point, you learned that they were expecting of you to give a speech of some kind. Well, in that speech, you said a number of things that were of some importance and some something provocative. You used it, I think, as an, as an occasion to reflect on your ambitions for architecture. And you said, most memorably, to me anyway, um, that you compared architecture to painting. You said, painting had an immediacy that I craved for architecture. And then you distinguished problem-solving architecture from the art of architecture. And you said, the moment of truth, the composition of elements, the selection of form, scale, materials, color, finally, all the same issues facing the painter and the sculptor. Architecture is surely an art, and those who practice the art of architecture are surely architects. To whom were you speaking in this speech? I mean, was it not just the, those in the audience, but was it to your critics at that point, your clients, the architecture profession, your artists who were your friends who promoted uh, I you? I think and, I was speaking generally, and, and that's a topic that I've been interested in for a long time because, as we've discussed before, over the years, great architecture was done by artists who graduated to be architects like Giotto and El all Greco the way to Bernini even. and Bernini and all Michelangelo. of those Michelangelo and you name them all it's just that at the time I wrote that speech and even now the climate to to say things like that there was a lot of competition between the artists and the architects even even my friends that who was who was what like Richard Saron Charlie Rose called me a plumber. <laughs> so for the longest time, and even after that speech and, and up until 
much more recently, whenever I'm told, well, Frank, you're an artist, I always say, no, I'm an architect. Because I don't want to get into the argument. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to discuss it. So what? Lately, I've been more concerned about it as things have been ramped up and architects, the architectural profession itself seems to have had, and the latest Pritzker Prize, several of them, seem to value low-cost housing, social social architecture over the art of architecture as though one excludes the other and one is more important than the other. And I... The answer to that is that every architect I know in my lifetime has always been very involved with social social architecture, been very involved with um, climatic issues, uh, energy saving. I, you know, I remember talking about it in college. I, kn- I know many of my colleagues have done free work in low-cost housing areas in many parts of the world. Well, if there's a moment in your career in which the two ideas of architecture, the art of architecture and the social utility of architecture, comes into conflict for you, it's at just about that time, because a few months before winning the Pritzker Prize, you were selected to design the new concert hall for the L.A. Music Center, which is going to be the home now for the L.A. Philharmonic. And it had to have been the most consequential commission for your career to date. How did you approach the selection process itself? Because you were invited to compete for it. it was, you, you weren't invited to with the job itself in hand, but it was right. competition. I was invited so to compete approach? against yeah. some formidable competitors like Holine and Sterling. Secret Bohm. Secret Bohm. Yeah. That's the four, four of us. And I, I knew that I was not a favorite of the Disney family because the Disney lawyer took me aside and gave me a list of things he was sure I wouldn't be able to do and one of them that stood out was brass handrails. And that's why there's a lot of brass handrails. <laughs> and then I called him when it was in. I said, is there enough brass handrails for you? <laughs> anyway, people judge you from what those early works. So they were inexpensive buildings and using raw materials. And I was trying to say that you could make, like Rauschenberg showed the way, with the combines to use cheap materials to make art and you could make architecture that way and it would be comfortable and it would be okay and so that rap followed me and the Disney's didn't understand it they thought I would want to make a chain link corrugated concert hall with plywood <laughs> when we got down to making the models Lillian Disney, who was Walt's widow, picked my model because it was blind. She didn't know it was mine. And so that was interesting. Yeah. Well, two things are always mentioned when stories are told of that selection process. First, that your design called for the audience to surround the stage, which was not a common thing at the time. In fact, it was inspired, I think you even said so, by Hans Sharon's Berlin Philharmonie. And then the other was a musician's garden which I think must be a nod to both the musicians' delight in and perhaps need for a kind of natural escape or, or refreshment. But also Lillian Disney, you mentioned her name, Lillian Disney's love of flowers. So you had in mind that the garden might, might be some element in this project that would appeal to her. Uh, tell us both about the stage decision to make that decision for the stage and then your inclusion of the garden. 
Well, I'd been to uh, Sharoon's Hall with Ernest Fleischman and heard a performance with the Berlin Philharmonie. And um, the vineyard was already being copied by many architects because of the Berlin thing. The, the vineyard, what do you mean? The vineyard seating. Oh, I see. They call it vineyard seating. I see. In the, <laughs> in the business. In the business. Yeah. Um, Sharoon had the touch. You know, if you went to that building, it was very humane. It, was, it felt good. It felt good with the audience. You, you felt comfortable with the audience, and you felt an incredibly good relationship with the orchestra. So that was... Wherever you sat, whether you sat wherever, in front or behind. It wherever didn't you sat, yeah. At the time I went there, the acoustics weren't perfect, weren't working. They were having troubles. And they had to retrofit some of it. And I think because the organ was on one side, stage left, and the on stage right, there was an indentation of seating. So the volume pushed in. And I suspect that had something to do with the unbalance. But was uh, it your idea of this that it would be uh, a more pleasant experience, visual experience or social experience or an, uh, an acoustic experience for the audience? I was working with an acoustician from Japan so who had different ideas about what the hall should be than Sharoon. And we met with Sharoon's acoustician, Dr. Kramer, and with our acoustician. And they were very different in what they proposed to me. In fact, I, I said, okay, you're two greatest. You each have a different idea. Which one should I do? <laughs> what about the garden? The garden was Lily, mostly. I did meet with her several times and quite liked her and had a great relationship with her. And she used to giggle and show me the Delftware that Walt loved. And I said to her, but Lily, this is the cheap stuff in the tourism. And she'd say, oh, isn't that funny? He loved that stuff. And so after she died, I made that fountain, and I ordered the cheap stuff, and the Delft people knew what it was for, and so they sent us the expensive stuff. So we broke 6,000 pots. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the garden, the seats are colorful, the carpet's colorful, the garden is accessible from everywhere and has beautiful trees and so on. And that was all for Lily and for the, the musicians to to use while they were there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was also intended for intermission. So for the audience. The audience could go out there. We designed rolling carts and bars, and, but they, and they never did it. Yeah. I don't know why they never did it. Well, it's fair to say that the project wasn't an easy one. No. <laughs> uh, and, and, and just the rehearsing of the sort of constraints on the project is daunting. So the music center was going to own the building itself. The L.A. Philharmonic was going to occupy it. The L.A. County owned the land and agreed to build the parking garage beneath the concert hall. The Disney family was to be its major benefactor. And then you had multiple contractors and consultants working for and against you. So was it clear from the beginning for whom you were working when you were given the commission, and were you prepared for the complexity of the situation? Well, I, uh, I'm not afraid of the complexity. I've never shied away from that kind of thing, because all buildings have reasons for being and particular needs. I love the challenge. I think uh, what 
What I wanted to focus with on was more the experience of the building and the acoustics. So I wanted to do a building that was acoustically relevant and was a place that people could interact and could interact with the musicians. It's all about that. It's about the comfort of the audience and the feelings that the orchestra feels. When the orchestra feels that the audience is with them, they play better. Mm -hmm. And then the audience feels better and it it builds from there. And it, it's true. Everybody tells me this. They, You know, the orchestra has told me this over the years that they really feel the audience and it has helped them yeah. a lot. And the audience, I get hugged every time I go there. So, <laughs> Well, it's not only because they are surrounded by the audience, but that the vineyard, as you described it, isn't yeah. deep and long. It's broad and right. shallow. It's got a sense of proximity right. to the orchestra. It's the, the trick, I think, is creating a simple room that creates a communal relationship with the orchestra and with each other. The architecture, not overbearing, that it, that it is background. And there was a lot of pressure on you at the time to move quickly with the project. Yet you were just getting more and more interested in a new kind of design and designing, and that is with the liberated curving shapes that we know the building to have today. How did you deal with the pressure to proceed quickly from their point of view uh, and, your, and, and with construction and with your th rethinking the design at the very same time? I think quickly is not... I mean, there's a absolutely length of time that's necessary. You can't just put it together in a few days. But I made many models. I think the secret is to get everything out on the table quickly, all the issues out in, in the open so that the client can interact with them. So the client can tell you what they need, but then when they see these models that, that have a different point of view, a different attitude, a different, they can react. And you can see, for instance, when we were doing the program hall, 2,500 seats, the models were a little bit big. You felt, you felt it a little big. When I, I said, why don't we do a 2,200 seat hall and crowd in as many seats as we can comfortably? And so we made a model that did that. And everybody could see that that was more interesting, more communal, did all the things. You, the scale was felt nice in the model. So I think the issue is to vet everything as quickly as, as possible, like find out, like we did all the musicians' uh, interviews, found out what their lo loves and hates were. But, but early on, and, and just as you're getting started with that, design process and you're also rethinking or advancing the way you think about the design process itself and you're developing the computer-aided technologies and various things, uh, you, you learn at just that time that you wouldn't be doing the working drawings for the project, but another firm would, ultimately the architect Daniel Dworsky. You must have wondered who your client was. I mean, they gave you one job to do and then all of a sudden they took back a very important part of the job from you. So to get in this and mention names, I get in trouble. I don't really. There was a person from the board that was assigned to uh, to run the project. They brought in a project manager. We we had started working before that 
because of, of Bilbao and and even before that, with uh, French aircraft computer programming, which made things much clearer. The executive architect that was chosen refused to use that. <laughs> so we offered to train him. As it got tighter and tighter, we offered to do it all, let him have the money and the credit. I, I thought it was going to be a disaster, and I said, we'll do it for you, uh, and they all refused. So actually it blew up because uh, they started Fast Track construction, and the executive architect could never keep up with it. And so when they were ordering steel, there was no place to put the steel because there was nothing there. So it came to a stop. They lost $60, $70 million. I was blamed, which is normal, I guess. Nobody came to my aid and said, that's not true. <laughs> and for a couple of years, I was ready to leave town. Yeah. I, I couldn't deal with that yeah. until they hired the Heinz people, Jerry Heinz from Houston. Yeah. I'm going to get to that in a second, but I'm okay. going to back up a little bit. Because before then, ground was broken in 1992, as I understand. And by I say ground was broken, that's to say that L.A. County began to build the parking garage right. on top of which the concert hall was going to be built. Um, and it was said that they did that in order to meet the deadline of Mrs. Disney's promised gift. If they hadn't started the project, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have gotten right. that gift. But it was just going to be the parking garage. And you were still designing and developing the concert hall. Did that give you a um, kind of artificial sense of time pressure on this? Well, it was normal time pressure. It got to be abnormal when nobody would would listen and and follow the rules. And and um, there was some skullduggery going on behind the scenes that I didn't know about. But yeah. it, it was was bad. And when Heinz came in and and it stopped everything. The garage was built, and everything was stopped. There was no, there was to be no concert hall actually, until Dick Reardon became mayor and decided the city needed that to be built, and he appointed his best friend Eli Brode to be the czar, as he called it. Right, right. And Mr. Brode was not a person that liked my work or my process, and so it got. Even after it all failed, the years in between that restarted, we still had complications. Yeah, yeah. I read somewhere that you thought at the time and expressed that you thought at the time that the so-called L.A. establishment had conspired against you on the project and that the project's complexity was a result of a failed political system, you said, in the city and the county, and that you even thought of moving out of Los Angeles yes, to go to New true. York or Paris or Newport, Rhode Island, my favorite destination <laughs> for <your> relocation. <laughs> but that Berta, your wife... Forbade it. Right. <laughs> the thing that changed our mind was in between the first disaster and, and during the hiatus, they hired the Heinz people to come in and evaluate what happened the first time. And the Heinz people came to me and said, you've been screwed. <laughs> it's not your fault. <laughs> You're clean, Mr. Gary. So I said, I know. And I hugged the guy. <laughs> And uh, so going forward, I had a clean slate and a new team, and, and I had the problem of Eli, uh, who tried again to take the project away from me. Yeah. 
And it would have failed again, actually, had he succeeded. Yeah. Now, while all of that was going on and Disney Hall was stalled, your architecture practice was thriving. Yeah. So you had the Wiseman Art Museum at the University of Minnesota. It was opened in 1993. The EMT Communication and Technology Center in Bad Oeynhausen, Germany, which opened in 1995. Extraordinary uh, commission. The so-called Fred and Ginger Buildings in Prague opened a year later. And, of course, the Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao, which opened in 1997. So all of that was going on while the politics and the project was stalled here in Los Angeles. These were all major and hugely innovative projects for you and for your architecture practice. And you were embracing this new design and new construction technology. It's almost as if your difficulties with Disney Hall drove you on these projects to prove, and I'm making this up now, but I'd love to hear your remarks on this, to prove Los Angeles wrong, to show L.A. that the world had opened its arms to you and had warmly embraced you when L.A., in your terms, was conspiring against you. Was, was there any kind of psychological motivation as a result of the, the difficulties in Los Angeles with the embrace of these other projects? Uh, I, it, when Bill Bow was finished, they did. That's when Dick Reardon said, well, you could build it there, you can do it here. And... Uh, and that's when they, he and Eli, I guess, somebody went to Bilbao and saw it. And and so I was getting um, support, so to speak, even though some of it wasn't really support. But I thought it, it would never be built. I really assumed it would never be built. And it, it was painful, but I've had projects like that. Yeah. So I still do. I, have, I can name some uh, <laughs> that take... A lot of your life and love and, and work and effort, and then they don't don't happen. But I think when it started up again, and they wanted it to be metal, I, it was stone originally because a, a stone building in the evening takes the ambient light and it's soft, and it's, and a concert hall somewhere you go in the evening. And I would never have used metal because metal's hard to light and it can look like a cheap refrigerator. <laughs> and so when they insisted it to be metal and save $5 million, and I used that as a chance to redo some of the parts of the building that I was didn't like by then. I mean, if you late long enough, there's stuff you, you want to change, right? Well, let's go back to Bilbao first, because the project in L.A. is stalled at this point. You get the Bilbao project. Uh, how did the commission for the Guggenheim Museum come about? Uh, was it the director, Tom Krenz, who just came to you with the, the project? Yeah. It had was, you ever been to Bilbao before? I had been to Bilbao before when I was working in France when I was younger in 1960. I used to drive around looking at... I was interested in Romanist churches. And, and Santiago de Compostela is not so far yeah, away. Yeah, I could go see all those churches. Yeah. Some of the best ones are on the... Pilgrimage routes, yeah. yeah. And so I passed through for that reason. And it was a sleepy city, I thought. I didn't pay much attention to it. Yeah. it was, there was something nice about it. Yeah. I think I heard or read somewhere that um, the original idea the government had for you was to convert an industrial building into a contemporary art museum, much like you had done here in Los Angeles at the Temporary Contemporary, but that you talked them out of that. that it wasn't it an industrial building. It's, it was a little different than that. It was a 19th century brick building. I don't know what, you'll know what style, but with turrets on the corners and 
It was neo -Gothic. brick and, and stone, neo-Gothic, yeah. yeah. What was left of it was the exterior wall. So it was like a fence, and it was a fairly large site. And it fit perfectly in the neighborhood. The neighborhood houses and everything, if you are standing at ground level, it will really work. You go inside, and it's... They built a bunch of stuff in there. They turned it into a kind of motel, I think, with two stories. But you didn't see any of that from the outside. Uh, they wanted to, me to leave the fence, the exterior fence, and build a, a building. And I said that they could do that. But if their desire was to make some kind of a statement and build a building that had relevance to the community and became part of the community, that this was kneecapping it, that it wouldn't, you know, would lose its strength. It would be hard to do. And that it was much better for them to find a use that was compatible with that existing building, and, and which I'm sure they could have. So I said, you're tying knots around this thing and making it impossible to do. If you, what you say is what you want to achieve, you can't do it on this site. And did Tom Krenz didn't tell me anything. <laughs> then we went back to dinner that night at the hotel, and all the city fathers were there, and I was sitting next to Krenz. They asked me what I thought of the site, and I told them what I just told you, and I was expecting a big kick in the shins from Tom, but he didn't. And we then had a few drinks and walked up on the hill and looked back at the city, and they said, where should we build it? And if you, if you go to the city, the, the hills are quite beautiful, and they surround the river. And, and you look down at the river, and uh, there was an old brick factory, and I could see that it had a relationship to the city hall, that even the city hall was further in the river, there would be a way to talk to each other. And so I said, there. And uh, they said, well, it's possible. That's, the brick factory is going out of business, and so on and so forth. And nobody yelled at me. <laughs> Uh, the next morning, I had a meeting with all of them, and Tom said to me that that was the same site he picked and talked to them about. So apparently, they had some discussion. I'm not sure about that one. <laughs> <laughs> but your timing was fortuitous because it coincided precisely with the more, the greater comfort that you had in, uh, or a greater understanding you had of the technology that you were developing right. out of the Wiseman. And we were able to build that building on, exactly on budget. Yeah. which in the Basque country is mandatory. If you shake hands and say you're going to do something, you better yeah. do it. Yeah. Well, the, the, your clients not only shook hands with you, and so they had the money to pay for it, at least at that level, uh, and they had the will to do it, and they thrust you into the job, and they got it done quickly. And it was 300 bucks a square foot, which is unheard of. And it was a triumph. Yeah. And since then, they told me they've earned 3.5 billion euros. And it associated you with something called the Bilbao effect, the idea that a cultural building could provoke a wholesale redevelopment of a city, which we've known, including which we've seen. Including the politics. Including the politics of it all. Uh, did that reawaken in you or confirm for you your belief? I thought it was a miracle. I didn't, you know. You thought I, it was a miracle? I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but you had, you had had, even at Harvard, as we talked about earlier in previous podcasts, 
episodes, you'd at Harvard had an understanding of what uh, urban design would be, that right. it would coincide with the elegance of architecture, and right. that it could actually provoke a, a redevelopment of a city. Yeah, and there's plenty of examples in the past, right, where where it did happen, where it was done, and so it happened again, <laughs> and yeah. it didn't have to be a Greek temple. <laughs> but in 1997, the Pritzker Prize ceremony was held in Bilbao, at the museum at Bilbao, right. the Guggenheim, 10 years after you had received it. And for many in Los Angeles, it must have raised the question of how this small, some might even say, as you described it, a small city in northern Spain could succeed with a triumphant, transformative Gary building when Los Angeles seemed like that it could not. Did that provoke, you know, you already mentioned Dick Reardon, and who was, became mayor in 1993. Right. Well, Dick Reardon, I didn't know him well, but he was a hockey player, skater, and so he and I used to skate together. And during those skating around circles around the ice, we would talk about the city. And in fact, when he ran for office, he sought me out to be on, his, on a committee for him and create a group of architects for him, which, which I did. And I quite liked him, and I thought he had some energy and uh, from a different kind of energy than the normal politician. Well, when you um, learned that he was going to revive interest and try to succeed with the project, and that he brought Eli, you already mentioned Eli Broad, onto the project, and you had had a history of some difficulty in your relationship with Eli, and the campaign launched then shortly after Bilbao opened, uh, did this revive your confidence, even though you had a history of some difficulty with Eli? Were you now confident with Dick Reardon and Eli together, with this campaign being launched, with well, the success I, of Bilbao, that it could know, start? I, I was worried about my past experiences with Eli, that uh, some of his thinking would come to haunt me. And I tried my best to not have it go there, but... Inevitably, the issue of who did the working drawings came up, and inevitably, the backlash from his misunderstanding what I was doing when I was designing his house. Because every time I would do meet him, have discussion on his house, there would be new inputs. So I'd go back and redo the design, and I did it two or three times. And he read that as my inability to focus or whatever and it was all about him, him trying to please him but it was it backfired so that mentality came in he was not going to let that happen that here the design was done we just want to change it to metal and he thought you could just write metal and it would be metal and that gary you can get some i got he had the gruen office my old office ready to do the working drawings. And they were not capable of it. I'm sure they were not. And they would have been just as messy as Dworsky, probably. But And just as this was happening, um, more than 200 architects from around the world took out an ad in the LA Times uh, newspaper calling for Disney Hall to be built and and you to be the architect of Disney yeah. Hall, of course, in, in the design that you, that you proposed it. And the architects included some of the most influential architects in the world. I mean, like Philip Johnson, Rem Koolhaas, Richard Rogers, Tadeo Ando, Richard Meyer. That must have felt like you've got, now you've got some wind in your sails. Right. It was unexpected. And, and it was started by Tom Main, who did that. Pritzker Prize winning Los Angeles-based architect. Right. Yeah. Nice yeah. guy. <laughs> yeah. So that must have made you feel good about that. Yeah, it did. 
But nevertheless, the project got stalled again because you walked away from it and you wrote a letter to Eli, which got published in the L.A. Times. And I you forget. said some things in the New York Times that I, I forget not, that. So, not so positive about the relationship, but you'd walked away. So the project died, as far as you were concerned, a second time. Yes. It was a Friday night at the bar in my neighborhood. He said, I'm taking the project away from you. And I looked at him and I said, well, I guess it was meant to be. And I walked out. Three days later, I got a call from Eli saying, I hope you're not going to be a sore winner. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, Diane Disney insists that you do the project. So that's it. <laughs> she she got involved and she offered to pay for your doing the drawings, now that you, to restore you to the working drawings. Um, she said, I read somewhere, that we promised Los Angeles a Frank Gehry building, and that's what we intend to deliver. And that's what happened. Mm-hmm. So you were made the sole architect at that time on the project, and construction begins in 1999, 10 years after you were selected as its architect, and the hall opened four years later in 2003. So it took... From the moment the gun went off in 1999, it was completed and opened in four years. Mm. Uh, tell us about Diane Disney and about your relationship with her and her commitment to the project and to the legacy of her father and mother. Well, I, I had met her during the um, process, for the first go-around, the second go-around. But I was instructed by her lawyer and our lawyer not to talk to her. That this was family, they wanted privacy, they didn't want to be involved, they would blah, blah, blah. So, you know, I shook hands and walked away. I was obedient. After she, the board meeting where Eli went and told him that he had dismissed me, apparently she got up and said, I will give you the remainder of my mother's bequest, which at the point I think was $25 million. Uh, when and if Frank Gehry is reinstalled as the architect. And uh, that was it. So that's when Eli said, I hope you're not a sore winner. Um, then we proceeded with the work. I called her then. I asked to meet with her, and I asked her why she did that. And she said her father used to come home from the studios beaten by the people in the studios, and uh, it felt like that to her, and she didn't want that to happen. One gets the impression uh, that they respected you, your art, your architecture, and they took a a hands-off approach to it, um, and and, and wanted only for it to be of the highest quality it could be. Right. So once you're now back on the job... Uh, you, your experience as an architect in the intervening years had of, had been one of great success, and, and the work that you did advanced your design understandings of the technology with which you could design and how you wanted to use that technology for new designs. And right. So when you came back onto the job, it must have changed in ways other than changing out the stone and putting in stainless steel. It must right. have been a whole rethink or, or temptation to rethink a lot of it because you were a different architect by, at that time. Yeah, but I couldn't couldn't change the forms. I didn't want to disrupt what we had, so I, I followed that. I mean, the changing to, to stainless steel was a revision, but not that complicated. 
So what were your biggest design challenges in the restart of the project? Was it the acoustics itself? Because at this point now, you're working with Yasuhisa Toyota. Who chose him for the job, and how closely did you work with him? Ernest Fleischmann chose them based on Suntory Hall. In Tokyo. In Tokyo, but it was pretty good acoustics. And the L.A. Phil played there, and they loved it. So he was hired, and they had invented the process of building one to ten models. So very large models. It was a very large model. And acoustically testing each seat, which was an ominous task, right? Yeah. And what they did is they built all of the major halls, including the Sharoon Hall, and tested it. So they had a, a comparative number they could go to. And they built a 110 model, and they, they fill it with nitrogen, so it reduces the air, so that it's one-tenth oxygen. <laughs> and um, they played music in it, and they could then scale it up so you could hear it. So they did a, a Mozart sonata or something. And um, you could hear it as though it was going to be played in the hall. And I mean, some of that was hocus-pocus, I think, but <laughs> maybe, who knows. Um, the 1 to 10 model resided in my office, and because of Ernest's contacts with uh, great musicians... I enlisted him to bring them to the office to sit in the model and look at it. And the greatest one of all was Pierre Boulez, who we all loved, who's now passed on, came and he spent the day in it, almost, I mean, several hours. And he came out and he gave us the high five. So I think it's a feeling thing, but it's also that Toyota company figured a way to zero in on a comparative thing anyway. Mm -hmm. it, it must have been you who decided on the, the wood, or at least using a wood on the interior for the kind of informality of it and the warmth of it. Yeah. Uh, but what about the acoustics of it? Was he daunted by that? No, he he didn't care. The, the requirement is two inches of cement, a wall two inches of cement. It could be cement plaster, so it was a little bit lighter. But so it could have been just a, pla a white plaster, and and I made models of it as white plaster, and it was beautiful. I, I'm dying actually. To, I did a white plaster thing in in Miami for Michael Tilson Thomas, but I'd love to do it in a full blown hall because it would be like those old churches in Europe, you know, the white ones, yeah. Austrian churches. So you had Ernest Fleischmann, who was succeeded by Deborah Borda. Right. You had Esapeka Solonim, who was the musical director at the time. And then you had all the orchestra players. And right. so you had to work and manage relations with artists as well as with the executives with the, of the orchestra, with the board, building contractors. Um, is this a lot more complicated than building an art museum? A little bit more, yes. <laughs> <laughs> an art museum, in the end, it's whose opinion of where the art looks good. And, and you know what the normal opinion is, is white little boxes. With, so that that's a preconception, and it pervades the whole culture of art museums, and it's hard to break out of that. And it doesn't completely work all the time. But the concert hall had a lot, of, lot more freedom, but it had more compelling requirements, too. And a lot more 
uh, people to please, I assume, or a lot or a part right. of the process. Yeah, and a lot more native, um, you know, people that didn't uh, are not supportive. Yeah. Wanting the same old. I mean, the first violinist when we won the competition said, "Mr. Gary, all you need is a measuring tool to measure the Boston Symphony Hall and replicate it." And he made violins. He he replicated Stradivarius. That was his hobby. And so I waited a while, and I got him, and I said, "Hey, tell me, you've asked me to replicate the, this building." When you replicate a Stradivarius, does it sound exactly like a Stradivarius? <laughs> and he looked at me. I said, I got you. <laughs> well, the story of the uh, Disney Hall is a story of operatic proportions. Or right. And narrative of great complexity. But I think that's powerful. And now it's a triumph. Now it's all been no, forgotten. No, but it's powerful, of course, all over the world. Yeah. I, you know... Public buildings, people weigh in. There's a lot of emotion, right? There's a lot of feeling. In the end, I think it's great because when it's finished and it's good, man, the kudos and the wonderful love you get. Because they all feel like they're part of it, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you should know that the music for this podcast episode, and indeed the music for the podcast itself, is taken from John Adams's The Dharma at Big Sur, oh, right. which John, as you well know, composed for the opening of Disney Hall. Right. John has described that music as being inspired by the shock of recognition of coming upon the California coastline as an outsider, because as you know, John is from New England, although he's long lived in Northern California. He described the music as being inspired by the way the ocean's current pounds and smashes the littoral in a slow, lazy rhythm of terrifying power, mm. his words. For a newcomer, as he's written, the first exposure to the coastline of California produces a visceral effect of great emotional complexity. And he cites the inspiration of another outsider, Jack Kerouac, mm-hmm. whom he says, comes closest to evoking my own sense of liberation and excitement, an ecstasy that is nevertheless tinged with that melancholy expressed in the first of Buddha's four noble truths, all life is sorrowful. So I wonder if you John remember... John Adams, he's a poet. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if you remember the orchestra playing John's composition that night at the opening of Disney Hall, and if that combination of ecstasy and melancholy matched your own early experiences of the California coastline itself, but the experience of opening that concert hall that night. I don't, I don't remember it in that detail. I loved the piece, I remember, and it, it sounded great in the hall. Was there a tinge of melancholy in the, Probably. that evening? Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember. Only a sense of triumph? A sense of triumph, maybe. Yeah. Well, it is a complicated story, as we have said and, and uh, tried, to, tried to describe, but it has resulted in a great triumph of the city, not only yeah. as you anticipated it to be in terms of a house of music and of art, but as a powerful statement for the redevelopment of the center of the city, which you're engaged. So I want to thank you for this, talking with us this afternoon. And as always, it's fun to be with you, and I look forward to our next conversation, at which we'll discuss your latest interest, which is the L.A. River. Wow. It's not just a creek. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you, Frank. Thank you. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur, composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. It is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. 
Look for new episodes of Art and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud, or visit getty.edu slash podcasts for more resources. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.